Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen McDonald. Today we're talking about coal. As coal plants retire, what happens to the surrounding communities and what happens in coal country? I'm going to start this segment with a clip of President Trump. Uh, you see what's happening with coal. Coal is coming. Clean coal. We love clean coal, and it's coming back. Setting aside whether coal can be clean and whether we actually love it, is it fair to say that coal is making a comeback in the United States? Certainly, President Trump has tried to create policy around protecting coal production. But our experts at the Union of Concerned Scientists and some innovative folks on the ground in coal country are seeing a different story unfold. The share of U.S. electricity coming from coal fell from 51% in 2008 to 31% in 2016. A new UCS analysis finds that of the remaining coal-fired power plants, roughly one in four plans to retire or convert to natural gas. Another 17% are uneconomical compared to cleaner alternatives and could face retirement soon. Is coal worth investing in anymore? What happens to the environment and public health when coal-fired power plants shut down? And what happens to coal workers? Dr. Jeremy Richardson is a senior energy analyst with UCS, and he has more than an intellectual connection with questions about coal's future. His grandfather and father were coal miners, and his brother is currently a coal miner, living in his home state of West Virginia. We caught up with Jeremy after he returned from a trip home, where he spoke with several folks in the region who are helping workers and the economy transition away from coal. We'll include some snippets from those conversations, as well as thoughts from a community leader in Illinois working on the front lines of environmental justice. These local leaders are helping envision a sustainable future for their communities. Thanks for joining me, Jeremy. Great, thanks, it's good to be here. Great. So can you describe briefly the analysis you've just finished on the ongoing transition away from coal? I'd like the science in a nutshell so we can get to the human aspects of the story. Sure, I'd be happy to uh, tell you a little bit about our analysis. You can think of it in three parts. So the first part was really a backwards-looking analysis. So we wanted to understand of the coal power plants that were operating in 2008, how many of them either retired, went offline, converted to burning another fuel by 2016. The second piece was really looking forward to try to characterize which coal plants have already made plans to retire or which ones may face early retirement based on the results of our, of our economic stress test, which is basically an update of our previous right for retirement analysis. And finally, uh, the third part is trying to characterize the demographics of the communities that are living around coal plants. And the idea here was to try to understand whether the transition away from coal is benefiting communities in an equitable way. So the basic top line result uh, of the analysis was that if you're looking forward in time from our looking at our 2016 coal fleet, there were about 280 gigawatts of coal that was operating in 2016. And just to give you a sense, uh, one gigawatt is about enough energy to power 725,000 homes. So there was about 280 gigawatts that we identified that was operating in 2016. 18% of that 
generating capacity has already been announced that it will either retire and go offline or it will convert to another fuel. And in terms of our economic stress test that we conducted, we found that an additional 20% of that generating capacity is uneconomic compared to cheaper alternatives, especially natural gas. So when you hear comments like the EPA is killing coal jobs, how do you respond to that? Well, I think it's really important to understand the historical context. Just to give you a sense, in a place like West Virginia, where I'm from, there were something like 120,000 coal miners employed in 1950. But by 2000, that number had fallen to under 15,000. And the story of that dramatic decline is really mechanization especially in the 1960s and moving into the 1970s, we started using machines to extract coal more efficiently and faster. And so uh, what you see over the second half of the 20th century is you see a pretty dramatic increase in coal production, but at the same time you see coal employment declining. And of course there were other factors that sort of explain those trends. Um, Another one, for example, is the moving of a lot of mining operations to large strip mines in the West, which is much more efficient and productive. So So there are multiple factors, but a big piece of that is mechanization, and it doesn't really have much to do with environmental safeguards. So tell me about life in a coal mining town. I I know your grandfather and your father, they were coal miners, Mm -hmm. and your brother is now a coal miner, and you're a scientist. (laughs) What was it like growing up in that environment and deciding to step out of that? Yeah, it's true. I come from a third-generation coal mining family. So my grandfather, who was the first of his family to be born in the United States from Italian immigrants, actually, he worked in mine all of his life, or most of his life, and even owned a mine for a time. Uh, And my brother today works in the same mine that my dad actually spent much of his career working in. So I I always like to joke that I'm sort of the black sheep of the family because, uh, you know, I went off and became a scientist and, you know, and even more so because I work on renewable energy and really trying to raise awareness about the need for action on climate change. I know you were recently in West Virginia and you spoke to some folks on the ground. Tell me a little bit about that. Right. I had the privilege of talking to several folks who are working in the heart of coal country to create new jobs and new economic opportunities there. And I have to say it was really inspiring and and really neat to get to hear from them directly about the challenges they're facing and about the successes that they're having. And what I learned from that is that there are some really great experiments happening and that we need to find ways to sort of encourage and support those efforts because they have a chance to you know, they have the potential to really change people's lives. So tell me a little about Refresh Appalachia. I met up with the president of Refresh Appalachia, Ben Gilmer, and he gave me a tour of a reclaimed surface mine where they have carved out a five-acre plot of land to use for farming. Here's a short clip of Ben Gilmer talking about Refresh Appalachia. At the end of the day, we're trying to build a local food system in central Appalachia with a whole host of other partners but a food system that creates and retains living wage jobs in the region. And the reason we think there's an opportunity there is demand for local food far exceeds supply in our region and nationally. In addition to that, we have uh, aging farmers that are aging out of farming in the region, and we don't really have the next group of farmers ready to help meet that demand. So we have, in addition to that, sort of food access crisis in our region where 
a lot of communities don't have affordable access to fresh, healthy food. Um, so Refresh focuses on the production side. So we have a series of training farms that we operate, like this one, where we train a lot of dislocated coal workers that are our trainees or young adults or others that are sort of wanting and needing this opportunity. And then we also have a food hub where we distribute product from air farms and also other farmers in the region to help get them into markets. Uh, and through our food hub, we also are working on a variety of programs to get healthy, affordable food into families that need it. That was Ben Gilmer from Refresh Appalachia. Jeremy also spoke to Brandon Dennison, the founder and CEO of Coalfield Development Corporation, which is helping rebuild the Appalachian economy from the ground up. I was born and raised in West Virginia. I had this vision for a community development corporation, like a rural version of a CDC, because I thought it was important. CDCs traditionally are urban, but what I liked is it's very holistic, very grounded in community. It's all about meeting people where they are. So instead of just being like an education program, it's a community asset really that can do a lot of different things at once. So you have health challenges, transportation challenges, employment challenges, education challenges. You know, let's uh, let's look at all of those and work on all of those. You know, depending on where you are with each. So I like that holistic approach. The more we did community engagement around housing, the more we realized that that wasn't really the main thing people were worried about. Really, people were worried about the lack of economic opportunity feeling like there's really no opportunity for you know, younger people who wanted to work and learn and stay here there really wasn't a chance for them to do that mm-hmm. and so um, the first version of this we actually called the first version was the green collar jobs initiative and that wasn't real popular you know the green <laughs> term wasn't real popular so we call it the 21st century jobs initiative 21ji and jeremy you had another tour yes I also got a tour of Coalfield's West Edge factory in Huntington, West Virginia from property manager Luke Huffman. West Edge is a mixed-use space for business incubation, galleries, and retail space. It's also the home of Coalfield Development Corporation. I'll tell you one thing, you've got great people here, you know what I mean? The stereotype is those movies you see about Appalachia and stuff like that, backwoods, country, no shoes. but. We're on the cutting edge, you know. I mean, we're, hopefully, we're we're switching over to solar. I mean, coal is a great thing and ha- and always has been, but it's at some point, you know, it's not going to work anymore. And I get everybody's wanting to see the plants fire back up, but what happens when the guy that's 41 years old gets dropped again? You know, he loses his health care. Well, maybe right here in Appalachia, he gets retrained and stays here, so he doesn't go to Pennsylvania, he doesn't go to Tennessee, he doesn't go to Kentucky. You know, he stays right here. So that's the way I'm looking at. Jeremy, it sounds like an amazing tour. What's it like on the ground when a coal plant closes? Where do the miners go and what can they do? So our analysis really focuses in on the economic stress test that we did around coal-fired power plants, not the coal mines. So what we tried to do to illustrate the idea that what happens when a coal plant closes is really complex, right? So there's a lot of competing priorities that you have to figure out a way to balance. So for example, when you look at how the transition away from coal has already happened, that's had a tremendous benefit in terms of public health. 
because there's so much of the pollution that comes from coal plants has an impact on people's health, particularly young people and the elderly who can be affected by the particular types of pollution that burning coal produces. So example, sulfur dioxide, mercury, these things have an impact on people when they breathe them in. And so you see this tremendous benefit of like reducing emissions from coal-fired power plants. But the reality is that it's not that clear cut, right? Because the community may well, even though they may be suffering the pollution from the coal-fired power plants, they may well depend on the plant for jobs. The community may well depend on the plant for local taxes, which support schools and services for residents. So there's this real tension of like trying to address the very real and very serious public health impacts of burning coal, but also trying to understand how do you deal with the, the economic consequences of closing that plant. And so how did we address that in this report? Because the analysis that we did didn't dig into those numbers at a national level. What we tried to do was to highlight examples of stories from a couple of communities that really show you some of the issues and challenges that come up and how people have dealt with them. Earlier, we heard your conversations with folks from Refresh Appalachia and the Coalfield Development Corporation. What other communities did you go into? I'm thinking that they're probably lower income communities because those are probably the communities that are around coal-fired plants, but where did you go? That's right. So the coal-fired power plants tend to be disproportionately located in low-income and minority communities. We found that in the analysis. We found that it hasn't changed significantly from 2008 to 2016. So yes, that's true. The four places that we highlight in this particular analysis, first we looked at a coal plant in Lansing, Michigan that had closed back in the 90s and sat vacant for a long time until an insurance company came in and decided to make it their headquarters. And they kept the building and turned it into a LEED certified facility. And it now uh, it helped to rejuvenate the downtown in Lansing. So that was a fairly positive story about how you can sort of redevelop the site. The second place we looked at was a couple of neighborhoods in Chicago, which had two of the dirtiest coal plants that were still burning coal within a major city. Uh, and after about a decade of really hard work by some local environmental justice groups, those plants finally closed just a few years ago. And this is sort of a mixed story because certainly it was positive for the community that the pollution went away, but it turns out their work isn't done because there's other sources of pollution that are still causing major issues there, particularly uh, diesel emissions from trucks. Uh, and they still have to deal with what happens to the actual building. Whether they're still there, they're still just inhibiting community development in, the, in those neighborhoods. So what do you do with those facilities once they're closed? My colleague J.C. Kibbe talked with Kim Wasserman, the executive director of the Little Village Environmental Justice Organization. Kim relayed the experiences of her team and her community and pointed out that the closure of the coal plants didn't address other sources of pollution in their neighborhoods, namely increased diesel emissions from a factory expansion. Let's hear a clip from Kim Wasserman. A couple of years after the coal power plant shut down, um, community members who now had a heightened awareness of air quality and air quality issues um, started to notice a ramping up of diesel trucks in our neighborhood. I'm sorry, the big storage box diesel trucks. And they were trying to understand why is it that they were seeing more and more and more of them in the neighborhood traffic is starting to con 
build up a lot more, more accidents, more people getting hit. What is happening? And so that conversation started to happen. And then soon after we were approached by folks in the community um, who were like, look, Unilever plant in our neighborhood, had no idea they were there. Apparently they've been in the neighborhood for a hundred years. <laughs> they make Hellman's mayonnaise there. Like a lot of industry people don't know unless they literally drive, even if they drive by there sometimes, they still don't know. They've put in a permit to expand. They want to bring 500 to 900 more diesel trucks a day onto their facility. We don't think this is right. This isn't a residential community. And more importantly, there's an elementary school feet away from them, not even across the street. I'm talking feet away from them. And so we inserted ourselves in the conversation. Unfortunately, at this point, it had been too late. And so the concessions that were won in the community benefits agreement did not include anything on environment. And in fact, the jobs component of it was horrific. Um, a lot of temp jobs, nothing really of substance when it came to living wage job, unionized jobs or anything like that. We'll be back with the second half of our interview in a moment. The Got Science podcast is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. You can find Got Science on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher, and also at gotsciencepodcast.org. If you like what you hear, share us with your friends and colleagues. To read more about the analysis, go to ucsusa.org slash coal transition. Now let's get back to the interview. The third place that we uh, highlight is the Roxboro coal plant in rural North Carolina, which some local uh, environmental groups are concerned about because of coal ash. So anytime you burn something, you get ash. And so coal ash in particular is pretty toxic, and there are a lot of concerns about contamination of the local water supply. And so that's that's one of the things they're focused on. Roxboro also comes up as uneconomic in, in our economic stress test. And then finally, coming back around to the mining communities, we wanted to, even though our analysis really doesn't focus on coal mining communities, it really looked at coal-fired power plants, uh, we wanted to acknowledge that, you know, as the transition away from coal happens in the electricity sector, it's really going to impact communities upstream from that, that is the coal mining communities that produce the coal that gets burned in the plants. Let's go back to your conversation with Brandon Dennison of the Coalfield Development Corporation. You guys were talking about the innovative worker training program he and his team created. We are sitting in the Wild Ramp, which is a six-day week farmer's market. And we're in Huntington, West Virginia. But we're kind of on the outskirts of town. You know, like we're not right downtown, kind of in a part of the city that feels left out often. And there are farmer's markets around, but they're usually only on weekends. And so some local visionaries, some women in the community felt like there wasn't enough access to healthy local food in Huntington, and they wanted to do something about that. So they created a six-day week farmer's market, so it's all sold on um, consignment. They handle all that accounting, so the farmers, they sell, the farmer gets the biggest cut of it. I think it's like 80 cents or something. Mm -hmm. And then the wild ranch just retains the difference. Mm -hmm. So they had this vision, and they did some fundraising, a Kickstarter campaign to get some refrigeration, some startup money. And we were actually the general contractor coal for development, so our crew came in, redid the building, incorporated as much reclaimed wood as we could. That's kind of our thing. We tear down old buildings and reuse, resell, recycle the materials. And now our agriculture program sells us produce here, which is really pretty neat. Yeah, it's fantastic. And um, so I know about it through following your work, but tell me about how Coalfield 
uh, sort of structured and, and how you the different enterprises that you have as part so we are structured as a family of social enterprises and we started in construction kind of green collar construction learning energy efficiency modern building techniques and uh, using incorporating reclaimed building materials and our first interesting social enterprise was deconstruction actually we have a lot of abandoned dilapidated buildings and most of that material just, you know, the city does a bulk contract and 10 or 12 of them come down at a time and it all goes in a landfill. We felt like there's a much more interesting, sustainable way to do that, both financially sustainable and environmentally sustainable. So we started in construction, then we got into deconstruction, and we developed this 33, 6, and 3 model along the way. Uh, so we hire unemployed people so that they learn on the job. And I think that's the key hook to our program. There's a lot of training programs in Southern West Virginia, but then folks earn those certificates and it doesn't lead to anything because our economy is so depressed. So our main strategy was, hey, if we're going to have an impact, we're going to have to be an actual job creator ourselves. And that's going to be the hook is the actual job and the wages in the pocket to support a family. So that led to this 33, 6, and 3 model, 33 hours of paid work like for any other company, but six hours a week in the community college classroom and three hours a week of life skills. So at the end of their two and a half year contract, our trainees have had real work experience. They've earned an associate's degree from the local community college, and they've had all this wraparound support for life skills to deal with transportation problems or health problems, to learn time management or money management, a lot of the intangibles that kind of get left out of the workforce development system. I love hearing these stories on the ground, but of course change can be hard. Jeremy, what do you see happening in some of these coal mining communities when the mine closes? Will there be opportunities for miners to transition to other jobs? Right. That's a great point because I think one of the things we struggle with is that it's really challenging to do that for two reasons. The first is that, you know, the, the transition away from coal and the, that is happening you know, it certainly is creating a lot of jobs. You see a lot of, I mean, solar grew in 2016 at, at 12 times the rate of the rest of the economy. Tremendous growth in solar jobs, also in wind, certainly in energy efficiency, you know, making, uh, weatherizing buildings so that they're more efficient. The problem is that those jobs aren't necessarily being created in the places where the coal mining jobs are going away and the coal-fired power plant jobs are going away. So I think there's a real need for policies that help drive investments in in those regions where the jobs are actually being lost. Um, and the second is that, you know, there are very few jobs that pay as well as these jobs. These are extremely high paying jobs with excellent benefits. And so how do you ensure that the jobs that that are going to be around to replace those lost coal jobs are family sustaining wages, have good benefits, really can provide a, a good income for people and their families. Right. You want to make sure that someone isn't going from that well-paid job to an entry-level position in some other field. Right. What would an ideal transition look like? So the transition as it plays out on the ground when a coal plant closes is really complex. And it brings up a whole set of issues. So I think there's no way to say what an ideal transition looks like. It's just very different for each community. And that's something we were trying to highlight I guess I would say that the main takeaway of this is that it really requires advanced preparation and advanced planning and engagement with the people that are affected by it. So that's in particular the people that are living around the coal plant and the people that work at the coal plant. 
So I think when local policymakers and state policymakers and, and utilities come to the conclusion that, okay, this plant might have to close or we should think about closing it, I think it's really important to talk with the coal workers that are at the plant, talk with the residents living around the plant, particularly the low-income and minority communities that may not typically have a voice in these sorts of decisions. What do they want their community to look like? You know, it's not sort of a one-size-fits-all solution. I think it's really important to sort of engage with everyone and, and get those ideas on the table and do it well in advance. You know, there are lots of examples of plants that have already announced that they're going to close and they've worked with the workers at that location and made sure that everyone gets transferred to another location or gets an early retirement buyout or some way to make sure that it doesn't happen suddenly. So I think that's the main takeaway I have is, is really a robust set of stakeholder engagement. If your brother were here, what would he want our listeners to know about life as a coal miner? I'm smiling because I, I hesitate to speak for my brother, though he tends to be a man of few words. <laughs> I think what he would say is that he's interested mostly in hard work and taking care of his family. And I think that that is admirable. I, I have deep respect for him for that. And so I think that my brother, I think people like him would say, you know, look, we don't want a handout. We want to work hard and, and make good money and take care of our families. And so I think that that's something that we should respect and appreciate. You know, the way that I think of it is, you know, talking to a coal miner about climate change is sort of roughly equivalent to somebody coming into my office and saying, Jeremy, the fact that you're a scientist is destroying the planet and you have to do something else now. It's difficult to hear that because being a scientist is part of my identity. And the other thing is that, you know, if that happened, I would grieve that and then work on my resume and go get another job here in D.C. And, and we're talking about places that, you know, those opportunities don't yet exist in a big, you know, sort of robust way yet. Uh, so I think, I, I think we have to approach it with a great deal of respect for the people that have helped keep the lights on in this country for the last century and a half. And I think that we have an obligation to ensure that they get to share in this transition to a clean energy economy. Great. Well, thanks for joining me, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it for this episode of Got Science. You can find the report at ucsusa.org slash coal transition. Special thanks to Dr. Jeremy Richardson, Senior Analyst at the Union of Concerned Scientists. I'd also like to extend special thanks to the folks on the ground working hard to transform their communities and keep them intact. Brandon Dennison, CEO and founder of Coalfield Development Corporation. Ben Gilmer, president of Refresh Appalachia. Luke Huffman, property manager at the West Edge Factory. And Kim Wasserman, executive director of the Little Village Environmental Justice Organization in Chicago. And of course, thanks to our Got Science podcast team. Our Chicago correspondent is J.C. Kibbe. Engineering and music by Brian Middleton. Research and writing by Pamela Wirth. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen McDonald. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Please share us with your friends, write us at podcast at ucsusa.org, leave a review on iTunes, or just plain like us. Thanks, and see you next time.